Ah, good morning. Good morning. I, uh, I hope Thanksgiving was great for you. I uh, hope you were able to rest, spend time with your family and friends, and, and enjoy some good food. Uh, hopefully you weren't like me and overate. Uh, but we are blessed in this country to have what we have. I am continually amazed at how blessed I am and how many things I have to be thankful for. I have been so blessed. Uh, people around me have been blessed. I hear stories all the time. Jamima just shared that family. We're, we're working with them. Nine children. I think the, the youngest is age two. Um, and the family is, I mean, it's just, it's a hard situation, right? Jamima was saying, how can you bring a dead body? It's hard enough to bring a live body to the United States, right? than to get a family who doesn't have the travel documents back to Africa uh, to, to bury a mother. All the kids cannot go. I think the dad said he can only take two of them. Keep that family in your prayers. It's not an easy situation, but we're going to work through it. And we're hoping that God works in a mysterious and mighty way. Amen. Well, I'm glad to be back. I haven't been back here in two weeks. I feel like two weeks away from the pulpit is too long. I am grateful. I want to thank all of you for supporting me through uh, the TED Talk situation that I went through. I think that was wonderful. I'm really grateful to be back speaking in front of 200 people instead of 5,000. <laughs> right? I got up there and I walked on that stage and I thought, wow. <laughs> it's a lot of people, right? But I'm grateful to God for that opportunity. I feel like I was blessed. I mean, I came from nothing, right? I was a refugee, orphan. Uh, to be standing on that stage talking to 5,000 people and sharing um, an idea that I feel like can change the world. It's not an original, it's not my original idea, it's Jesus' idea, right? Jesus is the one who says, forgive others and, and I will forgive you, right? That's the idea that I told the world uh, two weeks ago. And it let me tell it, right? <laughs> which was a miracle. But I was so grateful to be able to tell that story. Um, Coming from, coming from a place where I came from, contemplating murder because I was an orphan, to where I am today. Amen. We are ending a series and beginning a series in the same week. Uh, we're finishing a series on Christ in the Old Testament and beginning the Advent series as we anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ in this, in this period, right? The, the, our annual series on the Advent begins this Sunday, and we are closing out the Christ in the Old Testament series. Could you join me in prayer as we get ready to hear from the Lord this morning? Father God, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for where we are in history. God, I pray that your presence remains in this sanctuary, that I am just a mouthpiece to preach your word this morning. God, I pray that you do the work in the hearts and minds of people in this room this morning. We are so grateful to call you God. You are the everlasting Father. You are the Prince of Peace. You are the mighty God. You heal. You touch hearts. You mend broken hearts. Create ways where there seems to be no way. Lord, what we 
hope this morning is that your presence moves. Help us to understand your word a little bit clearly this morning. Help us to see you better. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Isaiah 9 this morning. If you have your Bibles, get there. Uh, Isaiah 9, as, as uh, Gina wrote, uh, Gina, Gina read, uh, Isaiah 9 is, is a book. The book of Isaiah is a book of prophecy. Uh, so when we think of biblical genres and we're reading through the Bible, we don't read every book the same way. We read prophecy different than we'll read a narrative, a historical story, or we'll read teaching and doctrine. We'll read those things differently. If I were to ask you this morning, if you could predict with pinpoint accuracy events that would happen 10 years from now, how accurate would you be? How accurate would you be? Five years from now, if you could predict something very accurately, how good would you be? If I gave you a pen and even asked you, can you write tomorrow's headline in this city, on this street, in this country, could you accurately write what tomorrow's headline will be? How good are we at predicting the future? We are not that good. I used to be a great Star Trek fan, and I would watch Star Trek as a kid, and uh, when they, when they said things would happen in the future and then how will, how will people be, how the clothes people would wear and the communication devices that people would have and, and 100 years from now or 20 years from now. And they were mostly always wrong. Scientific, science fiction movies are always, always, always wrong. I say that to bring to the point of understanding that when prophets wrote in the Old Testament, they were so accurate. They could not have been just men. I'm often faced with the question, whenever people say, hey, you are, you're a preacher, I heard you're a pastor, and I say yes, that usually shuts down conversation or it promotes more questions, <laughs> right? Uh, people always say, usually people who are skeptical about the Bible and Christians, they would say to me, they will ask me questions, questions that come with them an assumption, a type of question that when people ask it, they already know the answer to the question. Questions like, wasn't Abraham Lincoln tall? How do you answer that question? You know the person already knows the answer to that question, but they're asking you anyway, right? Those kind of questions. They're asking questions, hoping for an affirmation from you, right? An affirmation sometimes that will sometimes discredit your point of view. The question that is asked in this, when people ask me is, wasn't the Bible written by men? That question, if I affirm that question and say yes, it leaves me in a shifty ground, argumentative hole, right? A disadvantage. A logical and apologetic no-win situation, I call it. But there's a root to the question that people are asking. Why would someone ask you if the Bible were written by men? Right? It's an assumption, it's a confidence, also it's an insecurity there. The answer to that question, you and I know, is very nuanced. 
The people asking that question are not asking that question for a yes. They're asking that question for a yes or no answer. But the answer to that question is yes and no. Our passage today answers the question, answers this question, but it does much more. It shows us God's character, his attributes, his names, his timelessness. Did it just get dark in here? Okay. So I said, do I need to put on my glasses? The book of Isaiah is a book of history and prophecy. So I would like to situate us kind of in the cultural, linguistic, and chronological context before I keep going. Don't worry, I'll get there. Isaiah is a prophet. He's living 700 years before Jesus Christ. In his context, the people of Israel are struggling to stay humble to God. They're struggling. They're trying not to follow idols. They're struggling. They're trying to obey God. They are struggling because every other nation around them is living life very differently. Every other people that they see are worshiping idols. They have an earthly king. They are doing different things, and they're not worshiping the living God. They're struggling. They want to be like their neighbors. When this was written, they're about to face God's judgment. See, back in those days, God, God judged the nation of Israel by having them being invaded, right? They were invaded by their neighbors. This time, the Assyrians are coming. Judgment from one of their neighbors is, is imminent. It's upon them, right? They're going to get invaded. Defeat is coming, and they're being led by a man named King Ahaz. Ahaz is not a very good leader. He's facing this invasion from the Assyrians, and he says, he goes to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 6 and 7, and he says to the prophet Isaiah, he says, tell me what I should do. Meanwhile, he already has a plan, because he's already contacted his neighbors. He said, if the Assyrians come, I need you guys' help. So he has a backup plan to God. But he goes to the prophet anyway. God's judgment is swiftly coming, and they're about to take over, and he says, okay, Isaiah, what did God tell you to do? And here's what Isaiah tells him in chapter 7. He says, a virgin will conceive and have a son. And you should call his name Emmanuel. And you can imagine Ahaz thinking, we're going to get invaded? And this is what you're telling me? That someone's going to give birth to a child at some point in history? So this is a similar, a similar thing is happening in chapter 9. He's in trouble. He goes to Isaiah again. And God says, I'm going to provide for you something that you can never imagine. God says, a time is coming in this land. I will multiply this nation where the farmers will rejoice. Every soldier's garment and boots will be burned. In other words, there's a time coming for a for great celebration, for great, for great unity in verses 3 and 4. It doesn't make sense what God is telling the prophet to tell him. He's wanting an answer to say, hey, listen, I, God, will you protect us in this situation? And in verse, six, in verse 6 of our passage, Isaiah keeps going. He says, there's a baby coming. Again? 
Here's where I want to spend our time this morning. It's on this baby. How good is this baby that God chooses this moment in history to tell King Ahaz and the people, even though from all sides they are facing death, they are facing the possibility of slavery. The child has four names, four characteristics. It's a child of, it's a child of divine wisdom, but not a child king. So the people, when this was read, were expecting maybe Ahaz's son to come. To say, okay, this is the child that's going to save us out of this. Maybe he will have a caretaker. But no, God says he's going to be a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. How can one baby be all of these things? We all know here that a, a, a child can't be a father, let alone an everlasting father. He can't be a prince of peace at the same time. This child has got to be somebody really special, very transcendent and unprecedented. I'm going to spend my time going through the four characteristics of this child this morning and, so, and related to how we are sitting here today, right? The characteristics of this child. One, the Bible says he's a wonderful counselor. He is both God and man. He is without a doubt, he is intimately acquainted with all of us. A wonderful counselor. He is a counselor. He knows where you and I come from and where we are going. He is preeminent. No one counsels like him. No one teaches like him. He's not a suggester. He's not one that's going to tell you something and say, I suggest you do this. When I was 28 years old, I sat on the couch across from a counselor trying to work through my grief, and she would never give me imperatives, right? She would give you suggestions. I think you should think about it this way. I think you do this this way. Jesus is a wonderful counselor, does not give us suggestions. He gives us imperatives. He lives with and in us. He brings great judgment. He surrounds you with counsel and counselors. The word wonderful is the only English word that we have to describe the, the Hebrew word here. The wonderful word doesn't quite get to, the, get to the point. He's saying that God is incomprehensible. He's an incomprehensible counselor. His presence is filled, in his presence is filled with wonder. I'll give you an example. In, in the book of Judges, chapter 13, when Samson is about to be born, his father and mother get a visit from an angel. Not an angel, actually, the angel of God in the Old Testament. In what scholars will call a theophany, right? Meaning a sighting of God. Manoah, Samson's father, sees the angel, and the angel gives them instructions that he shouldn't cut the boy's hair, the boy shouldn't have alcohol on his lips, etc., etc. And he's given them these instructions. But then Manoah asked the angel, he said, so what's your name? And the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. That is the same word that is used in wonderful. Like it's incomprehensible. He's an incomprehensible counselor. He proved his wonderfulness in so many ways. When Jesus is born and he's going through his ministry on earth, 
His ministry is incomprehensible. The way he heals people, we cannot understand. His life is perfectly sinless. That is incomprehensible because no one can live a life without sin. His teaching is incomprehensible. We cannot understand his teaching because he's saying that, in one place he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's hard to understand, and that's let alone hard to do. He was preaching that back then. Allow for the wonderful counselor to work in your life because his work is beyond human understanding. Have you ever experienced that? When God does something that is absolutely beyond your understanding, absolutely beyond your understanding, you a quick story. Two months ago, I was sitting in the living room on the couch, probably watching soccer, and my wife gets a text message from her sister. Her sister lives in New York City, and she said, I can't believe this text message. I said, what is the text message? And my wife says, telling me, my wife's father died two years ago, November 19th. It was a Sunday. Um, her, fr- her sister sends this text message. Her, one of her sister's friends from high school, 15, 20 years earlier that she hadn't talked to in 15 or 20 years, writes her and says, I had a dream last night that a man named Mark David says to tell you that he's doing great. He is fine and don't worry about him. He's loving life. My father-in-law had ALS for 15 years before he passed away. The family was always, it was always a tense situation. For her sister to get that message from a childhood friend who did not know her father or know his middle name sent her this text message 20 years later. Did you get goosebumps yet? Unbelievable transcends our understanding. When I was struggling, when I was absolutely at the bottom of my life, struggling as an orphan and didn't care about God, didn't want to hear anything about God, he started to work in those ways in my life. And one of those stories, one of the ways he works was actually through these stories in the book of Isaiah. Because I was completely skeptical. How can God love me when I, both my parents are dead and I'm a refugee with lice in my hair and I'm on a family farm working for a family I didn't even know? How can God love me? His love is incomprehensible. Amen. He's a mighty God. I'm going to hold myself from crying. God has the power to bring to pass what he has promised. He has the power to save us. No one else has the power over death in this world. We will all leave this earth. before. If Christ doesn't come, we will all leave. We can fight it. We can take injections. We can get extensions. We can do whatever. But at some point, at some point, we we have to say goodbye. Right, Antoinette? God has the power over that. When we say he is a mighty God, he does, right? Our number one fear, at least maybe, maybe, maybe not for you, our number one fear, my number one fear is death. 
right? I, 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 I conquered it through Jesus Christ, but when I think about it, right? Woody Allen said, I, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens, right? <laughs> right? He has the power to conquer that. And that power is available to us through Jesus Christ. In John, 11, chapter, in John chapter 11, verse 26, Jesus walks to the grave of one of his good friends. And he says, whoever believes in me shall never die. And he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. He's the only one that has that power, folks. He proves how powerful he is by not only raising Lazarus, but he himself, right? He dies and he raises himself from the dead. He is so powerful. He has power in every aspect of your life, right, that you are wrestling with. You're wrestling with fear. I don't know what you are wrestling with this morning, but you have in your corner a mighty God. When you know you believe in a mighty God, you live differently. You don't live carelessly, but you live expectantly. Have you ever been around someone, an old saint, someone who trusts in the Lord in their last days? Have you ever been at a bedside of someone who, who's a Christian, true and true, know that know where they're going? They always say, I'm ready to go. And trusting in the power of God. Their last, last words are always, always impactful. I lost, two, I lost an, an uncle and an aunt in the last two years who were Christians. I mean, struggling through the health situations, but when I sat with them on the last times, they would tell me, hey, I'm ready to go. Their only worry was actually being buried here in this cold ground, right? They wanted to be back in Africa. They were ready. The last words of some famous Christians I'll read for you. Martin Luther said this, our God is the God from whom cometh salvation. God is the Lord by whom we escape death. Richard Baxter, an old theologian, says, I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. One of his last words. John Knox said this, Live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. Paul wrote, Paul wrote in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, he says, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Where are you today? Do you have that power in you from the mighty God that conquers death? Do you? I want you to ask yourself that question if you're sitting in your chair. Without a shadow of doubt, do you understand that the power that you have in you transcends death? He's an everlasting father. He is timeless in nature. His tenderness, his fatherly care is never-ending. This is one of the reasons I believe in Jesus Christ. Because for Isaiah to write 700 years before the baby was born and predict this child would have all these characteristics, to me, is unbelievable. Here's why it's unbelievable. I'm a grammar nerd, and I'm going to go there with you. If you read that passage, all of the main verbs are written in the past tense. 
Here's what that means. He is looking 700 years in the future. Seems like he should say everything will happen, but he's writing as if it's already happened. Maybe you didn't hear me. 700 years in the future. He's writing as if it's in past tense, like it's already happened. When I was a skeptic, that's one of the things that convinced me that God is ever, he's an everlasting father. If you and I are sitting here today and we can predict tomorrow's headline, someone who writes 700 years in the future and is writing in the past tense and those things did happen, you cannot doubt the power of God. I'm going to keep going. So when people say to me, did man write the Bible? I answer that question, yes and no. Because Isaiah wrote the Bible, but no man in their right mind could have written this and been so accurate. Uh You hear what I'm saying? Nobody could write 700 years in the future and been that accurate without having the Spirit of God in them. Right? First Timothy 3.16. Right? The, the, the scriptures are God-breathed. God wrote them to somebody. So it's not a yes or no answer. It's a yes and no. He can afford He can afford to give us eternal salvation because he is the creator of it. Eternity came through him. It's hard to put into words God's fatherliness, right? His care, his love. So this baby that Isaiah is talking about has to be just an absolutely wonderful baby. An everlasting father. Creator of eternity. He has to be. I describe God sometimes to people who ask me this question. It's like God is the architect of the ages. His fatherhood never ends. See, our earthly fathers will more than likely pass away before we do. It's a fact of life. But our heavenly father died and rose again, and we will see him again. In this country, when I came to this country, I used to hear about the founding fathers. The founding fathers, the founding fathers, right? Those people who first brought the idea that we live in this, this nation, right? This, this idea of democracy, this idea of, this idea. Now we sit around and we read the Constitution and we struggle to interpret their words correctly. We live to live out their ideals and sometimes even, we even question their motives. But they were not everlasting. And therefore, our eternal fate does not rest on them. It rests on what John the Baptist called the Word. Our eternal salvation does not depend on the Constitution of the United States. It does not depend on the founding fathers, right? It rests on the everlasting Father. John the Baptist said, he is the Word. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word was with God, and the Word was was God. He was with God in the beginning. Right? He's always been there. This child that is going to be born, God in the flesh, had always, always, always already been there. 
He is God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. He and the Father are one. That's incomprehensible. But he is a good God. Finally, the Prince of Peace. The Hebrew word for peace is a big, loaded word. Shalom. It denotes or is translated peace between individuals, peace between groups, peace between nations, physical safety, political harmony. Can you imagine peace? We sit in this room right now, and I know there are people in here who have a beef with somebody else in here, right? When shalom comes, there will be peace individually. There are groups of people in this world who struggle against each other. That will no longer be. There are countries in this world who struggle against each other. That will never be. There will be peace between nations. Imagine that. There will be, because we are living in this world and we are sinners and self-centered, it's hard to bring that to pass. We yearn for that place of peace. For that time, we yearn for a leader. Something in us yearns for that. Our Heavenly Father put it this way. Our Heavenly Father, sorry, our Heavenly Father has put that in us, that yearning for peace. I was sitting there yesterday thinking about what it would look like for the world to experience shalom, this peace. Do you know how many conflicts there are in the world today? Just nation against nation? I was curious, so I went looking. How far are we away from this shalom? I went looking for how many conflicts in the world are going on right now. It's actually harder than I, than I thought. Because one, I said, well, I just Googled, how many wars are there in the world today? Clicked on an article, clicked on this article, clicked on that article, and I started reading. I got into this rabbit hole because they started defining war. Like, what is a war? There are major wars, there are wars, and then there are minor wars, and there are skirmishes, and then there are, what is the other one? There are clashes. So I started counting. First of all, I think it's, 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 it's ludicrous that they think there are minor wars. There's no such thing as a minor war. I lived in a war. It's not minor. We see our world and we look that is broken. Things are wrong and we long for peace. We long for someone to bring that peace. There can only be one Prince of Peace. From the dawn of the nations, there have always been wars, but one day there will be shalom. There will be peace that we can hope for. This Prince of Peace, this young child, one of his characteristics will be that he will bring peace. <clears throat> I don't know where you are today, whether you're going through personal grief or emotional trauma, but I want to assure you that no matter what your immediate circumstances are, these names of God are true. If you're sitting here today, you're wondering, can I really trust 
God in my circumstances? Can I trust the words written in this book so long ago? Can they really apply to me? I urge you, right, like I said earlier, go back and read that passage and notice how many of those words are written in the past tense, right, in the prophetic tense. Isaiah is writing about this. He's writing about this human a lot of years into the future, and he's absolutely right. Open your Bible. Start to read. Start to study. Because it's absolutely true. None of us could have written what is written in here and been as accurate as he is. The scriptures are divinely authored. The stories are much more than one man's imagination. I used to always think, well, if somebody wrote this, they can write stories. But the more you study it, the more you realize that not only were the individual authors divinely inspired, but they lived in separate eras and their stories all connect. You can trust the word of God because God is the ultimate author of the Bible. He is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. Nothing in your life will surprise him. Nothing that he hasn't seen before. As a child of God, you are in his mind and he has plans for you. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, we, will, we may be afflicted with prayers, right? They are struck down, they were going to be struck down, and not, but they will, they will never be destroyed. We will never be destroyed. 2 Corinthians 4, 9 says, we are afflicted in every way, but, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, right? We are always carrying in us Jesus Christ. His life is manifested in our lives. Just as the Israelites hoped for a Messiah, a child that would come, this day we are hoping for Jesus Christ's second coming. But his names, his characteristics have never changed. He is still a wonderful counselor. He is still a mighty God. He controls all circumstances. If he rules in your heart, your peace is secure. When he rules this earth, there will be shalom. By your head with me. Father God, thank you this day for being a mighty God, for being an everlasting Father, for being a Prince of Peace. We love you and we thank you. Let those words reach the hearts of many. In Jesus' name, amen.